love for visual arts began with staring at album covers as a kid. There had even been times when the actual music on the record took a back seat to the visuals on the sleeve. Cool cover art can draw your interest into new music or even make lousy music interesting. Cal Schinkel, Overton Lloyd, David Stone Martin, Jim Flora, and secretly the covers of Ohio Players Records were all work that I obsessed over and I was obsessing over this art on square cardboard. No other artist took my attention more than Pedro Bell. Bell was the visual artist for Funkadelic and George Clinton. Pedro Bell had done every Funkadelic album cover starting with Cosmic Slop and then did several George Clinton solo albums. His visuals entranced me more than any other art that was on an album cover. He influenced my artistic style greatly and solidified my desire to work doing music-related art and hopefully, eventually, album cover art. The loss of Pedro Bell yesterday was very sad to hear. But I feel people will continue to talk about his album covers for a long time. Pedro Bell had been sick for a while and um, battling a lot of health issues. The reason for his death was not disclosed. Um, I do know he was also um, in a rough way in terms of money and uh, livelihood to the point where he began to sell originals of his work that he really didn't want to sell. Um, I also know that at one point, Bernie Worrell, who was in Parliament and Funkadelic, and then he went on to play with um, the Talking Heads, Bernie Worrell did a benefit for Pedro Bell um, not all that long ago. I don't know, but I'm hoping and sure that it helped. In 2015, I did an illustration um, featuring a whole bunch of different visuals from each Funkadelic album cover that Pedro Bell did. Then, in February of 2016, I was able to pass that piece of art along to George Clinton in the hopes that not only would would he like it, that Pedro Bell would get to see it and know that he has big fans out there. Pedro Bell was 69 years old. Having said all that, I hope you enjoy this episode where I sit down with college buddy Luke Swercheck and um, we talk about film and theater and our opinions on such things and also listen out for a terrible, embarrassing producer's reference or joke, either one, um, that I make. It's, it's pretty awful, but I left it in. I will talk to you a lot. Yes. For there is nothing else. Are you all ready to join you today in our trip to Lauderdale? Come along quietly or not. You can have all the talent in the world and never get anywhere. Some promise, bait a hook, let you bite upon it. And now, without further ado, Okay, folks, welcome to a yet another episode of Planet Shivers Podcast. I'm Albert Shivers, and I'm sitting here today with actor and good buddy, 
Luke Swercheck. And thanks for doing this show, man. Thank you for having me, Al. Oh, definitely. So um, you just came off of acting in a stage version of Little Shop of Horrors. Yes. How'd and that go? It went very well. Um, it was at Center Stage Theater at the Tamako Community Arts Center in Tamako, Pennsylvania. We rehearsed for about two months, uh, usually uh, three nights a week. Or actually, no, uh, two nights and then uh, Sunday afternoons mostly until Tech Week, of course. I played Mushnik, the Jewish shop owner. So for the first time in my life, I had to learn a Yiddish accent for the mm -hmm. role. It was a challenging undertaking. It's a different accent from any that I've previously affected for any other role. And I had to look up, uh, you know, very... Uh, professional sources online to to get it down but I think I got it pretty well and I had a blast with the role I was a little nervous uh, during tech week two days before we opened I injured my back and I was afraid I would not be able to uh, do uh, certain scenes I'm not going to spoil it for anyone who's not familiar with the show but thankfully after a good deal of uh, Tylenol and a leave and back stretches, I was recovered enough to perform everything necessary for when we opened the show. Nice. Yeah, those back stretches yeah. were a real lifesaver. Yes. So, and you've, you've done many plays. Yes. Um, As a matter of fact, uh, Little Shop is my 61st play that I've done. Wow. Yeah. Now, does that, inc are you, what are you, how do you, what are you counting there? Like, are you counting college as well? Yes. I, okay. I, every play that I've done since my first lead role in my, in an eighth grade Christmas play that I did in, okay. in school, um, if I count everything from there, I'm, I'm at 61 now. So that includes school, uh, you know, high school community theater. Uh, summer stock theater college of course and even a brief stint at the dorney park haunt attraction wow <laughs> wow yeah that, that's a good that's 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 a, a nice number and it's good that you keep track like that yes i mean that that's <laughs> that's so high you must have like been doing summer stock in the winter even <laughs> <laughs> the company that i did summer stock for the shawnee playhouse actually does have a winter season and i did work full time there for two winter seasons so that was fun okay <laughs> so you mentioned that your first lead was in eighth grade yes so that's pretty young yes I mean, maybe not to be a lead in, in the class but you definitely were interested in acting at, at that point so what was it that motivated you to want to be involved in theater and then want to you know pursue uh, acting well uh, as far as i know i have adhd with an attentiveness which is often erroneously called add but um, from what i understand that hasn't been the official terminology since 1986 but to be fair add is easier to say than adhd with an attentiveness right um uh, yeah I've had it my entire life I have a very short attention span except when I'm working on things that I'm very passionate about mm. and uh, when I'm not daydreaming and talking to myself my next biggest love would be movies so ever since I was a kid you know a very indoor sedentary antisocial couch potato I loved mm. movies and I found myself while I was daydreaming and talking to myself reenacting and imitating actors in movies that I saw um, 
I know a lot of people can pinpoint, you know, the exact movie that inspired them. I honestly can't. I don't remember ever not wanting to be an actor. Um, I and there's not if you fall into it later in life, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. I I've worked with some late bloomers who fell into it, you know, like in their late forties, mm-hmm. and they're still just as talented as anybody else. But yeah, I've I've been into it, you know, for as long as I can remember, and it's it just seems to be the best outlet for me. Mm-hmm. And uh, my parents have always supported me. Uh, some of my older siblings, uh, not so much. They tried to get me to work harder on getting a day job, a real job. And I, to be fair, to their credit, now that I'm older and wiser, I do wish I had listened to them a little more mm-hmm. because I thoroughly underestimated how difficult it is to find work in the industry. I could somewhat relate just being in arts and, and, and film. So let's go back for a, a little tad and... um so was acting at a young age uh, or your interest in movies, was it, uh, did it help your ADHD? Um, I, I wouldn't say it, well, it helps control my ADHD while I'm doing it. It's not like, you know, my ADHD has, imp- like overall has improved with age. Like I know that when I'm rehearsing for a show, especially if it's something I'm really into, like a bucket list role, I'm definitely able to stay focused throughout, you know, a two or three hour rehearsal without mm-hmm. any difficulty or when I'm, you know, actually doing the show. But, um, yeah, but once I'm out of the rehearsal and, you know, it's back to the classroom or the day job, you know, I'm, my mind wanders, uh, compl- as aimlessly as, as you can imagine. Right. No, it's, and it's, funny not funny haha to me <laughs> that you bring this up because two interviews ago yes um i was talking to a drummer and visual artist um and he came to that later in his life but um who what became a drummer as a child because he had adhd and at that time this man is 67 now and at that time they just thought he was crazy and just, oh, he's just hyper. And it wasn't until someone like st- stuck some drum sticks in his hand that he was able to kind of find something artistic to alleviate some of that angst or antsiness, you know, yes. however you want to put it. Yeah, I mean, it's practically a running gag in the arts industry, in theater and elsewhere, that you have to be crazy to want to be an artist. I mean, yeah. It, we laugh at ourselves for it, but it's true. Maybe it is, it's crazy that we choose to do a thing that the odds, we're told, yeah, the odds are slim. Yes. I don't, I don't really feed into that the odds are as slim as it's laid on us to be. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's the harder you work, the easier it becomes. Yes. You know, and I, I think that there's a lot of lazy artists among us. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. not in this room, neither, <laughs> neither one of us, but I'm just in general. So what was your first role uh, in my, school? My first role uh, that I count, because I went to, uh, I, I would like to mention, I did go to a Catholic school that did uh, Christmas plays every year. So every grade got involved. And you know, it was um, the eighth grade, you know, always had the lead parts. And then every all, all the other grades did ensembles like we would. 
like each grade had one musical number in the show but i don't you know have the playbills or anything it was forever and a day ago and i hardly Mm -hmm. even remember most of those shows but my first one that i count as my first show was called how the grouch found christmas i played uh this kid on a school field trip on christmas you know the kids are going around uh giving donations to the poor uh visiting these different sites and i'm the kid who's you know being the killjoy spoiling the holiday for everybody and long story short uh toward the end you discover that he uh, his dad has just been downsized and now uh, for christmas they won't be able to afford uh, the latest uh football video game that he was really looking mm-hmm. forward to but after in, have, after a chance encounter with some hol- homeless children near the bus who aren't involved in the trip and have don't even have anything to eat he starts reconsidering what he's been doing and has a change of heart. Okay. So, yeah, it was yeah, my first lead role, and I definitely had fun with it at the time, although I am glad that I don't have any recording of it because <laughs> I... That is, like a lot of artists, a lot of performing artists, I hate watching my own work. I'm very critical of it, and I have a feeling mm-hmm. if I saw my... 14 year old self acting back then i'd probably hate it <laughs> very even, much even even so now oh yeah you would okay <laughs> no I, I can understand that my uh yeah i can understand that so you continued to act through high school yes my younger brother uh john who's uh, seven years younger than me uh my parents you know wanted him you know to avoid, you know, vegging in front of the TV, like, you know, mm-hmm. and wanted an excuse for him to do something. So they got, they convinced him to try out too, and he ended up playing the Dormouse. And then from that point on, he had at least a bit part in every show that I did uh, till the end of high school, except for my actual high school senior play. Um, then after that, uh, I started uh, my. Th- theater degree at East Stroudsburg University in 2007. Um, And my first year there, up until that point, every show I had auditioned for, even though obviously wasn't very many, I always got at least a minor role. And then, you know, here I am at ESU in the theater department, and I auditioned for the children's show, didn't get cast, Mm -hmm. auditioned for the uh, modern... uh, the modern drama for the winter, which was the Laramie Project, didn't get cast. Mm-hmm. Auditioned for the One Axe, didn't get cast. Mm. Finally auditioned for their classical piece, which was uh, Tartuffe by Moliere, and got uh, two bit parts. Huge blow to the ego, to be sure. I can imagine. Yeah, because yeah, up and which I needed. I chose to major in theater because I thought it was going to be a cakewalk. I thought I was hot stuff. I thought I was naturally talented. I thoroughly underestimated how complicated acting is. It never, I thought it was all pure instinct. Just learn your lines and your staging and that's it. It never occurred to me that there are as many ways to act as there are actors and that there are people like Stanislavski and his many pupils who made it into a science. So... You know, I learned more from my intro to theater class about the art of acting than I expected to learn in a lifetime. And it was it was heartbreaking, but not to the point that I thought, oh, maybe I should drop out of this and pursue something else. So it's like up until, you know, I was already, you know, 
18 years old. I acting was my life at that point. I couldn't right. leave that. So, but when I did Tartuffe, you know, and I finally started working with other people who were just as eccentric as myself, if not more so in some cases, and they took me under their wing and they, you know, taught me a bit about the craft and and of course I being a theater major I was required to get involved one way or another if I wasn't on stage I was required to help build and paint sets which again initially I had no intention of doing I thought oh that's the technician's job let them do that Mm -hmm. but being required to do that taught me humility and that theater is a collaborative art form and that the actors in the scheme of things have the easy job right and that you know, and to appreciate you know how 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 much team effort is involved in putting everything together, and how you know if you don't like something about a show, you can't blame one person. It's you know, or if you or if you appreciate something about it, you can't just give credit to one person. So in that first year of college, two thousand seven, um, and you listed a few just now already, but in a technical sense of acting, what do you feel was one of um, the most important things that you learned that you didn't have going in was there anything in particular that stood out to you that really hit you in terms of learning that i had to do more research on characters than just learning the lines that i might have to learn like how does my character walk or you know how does um how does my character turn to face other people or how to actually inter play off of other people you know like you can't just plan ahead oh, okay i'm gonna say the line this way because i think this is the way it sounds it's like no you have to listen to the other person if they say their line that way and then you say it the way you planned maybe they won't gel together you have to react to each other to blend in not to stand out mm-hmm. um so and that was you know just the first year and um uh, and as we went on, I started learning other things like mm-hmm. how to be more restrained. I, when I started in acting, I, you know, I used to flail my arms around aimlessly. My eyebrows practically had a mind of their own. Like <laughs> I, I was raising them nonstop to the point that uh, my third year, when, when I took voice for performance, uh, the professors literally put scotch tape on my forehead so that every time I raised my eyebrows, I noticed. I was like, right. oh, God, I really have to mm-hmm. stop. I have to keep my face still so you started esu in 2007 and for any if we didn't already say it uh, esu is east Strasburg university yes you start there in 2007 and um i began the same college in 2008 mm-hmm. my path to getting involved in the theater department um and then thus becoming friends with you and and other people there was a very windy road. I started as a history major, didn't like it, wanted to leave. My mother convinced me to switch to an art major because I had done art in the past. Mm -hmm. And while being an art major in the fine arts building, (laughs) I see the ad to... um, For the one act. For the one act to submit. So I took one script that I wrote, which was ridiculous. (laughs) And another script that I didn't write that I just liked, and I submitted those and got in and blah, 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 blah. Um, so I hope this doesn't embarrass you. I think I know where you're going but with this, but go, but go for fun, it. And I love this story <laughs> because I didn't know you. <laughs> I didn't know anybody. 
and it was at one of the first um, One Act meetings. So all the student directors were there, and the actors were, were all, the, you know, we didn't know there were going to be actors yet, but all the other students who were would be go on to act in these plays and were ready to act in these plays were also there. And I was discussing with the um, head of the theater student group of whether or not the actresses in my play, which was Alex Braun's 10,000 Cigarettes, would smoke real cigarettes or not. And not knowing you, you just sort of like made yourself present <laughs> and exclaimed <laughs> that if real cigarettes were used, you would not attend that play. You'd walk out. I was like, geez, he really must not like cigarettes. <laughs> and I, I understand it, but as the new guy, that was like very, like I remember that very well. <laughs> Could go not knowing anybody. I'm like, man, they're stricter here than I thought they were going to be. What I find hilarious about that is I believe you, and you describe it. It sounds like something that, it sounds extremely plausible, but I cannot for the life of me remember it. And my only ex, my only rational explanation is that you and I have gotten so close to, since then that I've become so embarrassed by that memory that I've managed to repress it. It just, because, <laughs> yeah, admittedly, I guess part of the reason I hate cigarettes is that, you know, I do have a history of childhood asthma. Now, I'm not asthmatic anymore. I haven't had an asthma attack, I think, since middle school. But I remember you know, what it's like to not be able to breathe and to be hooked up to a machine or oh, need yeah. an emergency inhaler and so on. And I know that, you know, there are so many stories about, you know, actors who, you know, didn't smoke, but then they had to smoke for a role and then they end up becoming addicted and so mm -hmm. on. Like, oh. Uh, I think uh, Carl Weathers uh, complained about that while doing Predator with Arnold Schwarzenegger. You know, Weathers had never smoked uh, cigars before, and Arnold offered them to him, and then he got hooked, and he's like, "Shame on you, Arnold!" Wow. So yeah, so yeah, I, you know, I knew most of the actresses in that play that you know that ended up working right. for you, and I you know thought, no, if any of these women end up becoming addicted to something as deadly as smoking because right. you made them do it, I will hunt you down. <laughs> but uh, and and to, to to put a period on it, um, we ended up using the we tried different things mm -hmm. because the actresses were split. Yes, on whether or not they really should be smoking something or not, mm -hmm. and there were four four actresses in it. Two of them thought we should really smoke, and two of them were like I don't want to. So we did a lot of things. We tried like these weird um, herbal cigarettes mm -hmm. that I didn't try one just because there wasn't enough, but that they apparently tasted nasty. And one of the actresses was a smoker at the time, so she didn't care. Yeah, she would have done it. Um, but we ended up using the the ones. The prop cigarettes with the powder in them that you blow mm -hmm. instead of inhale. Right. And then the four of them had to perfect the 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 appearance of inhaling while really exhaling <laughs> to not make it because you know you can't have them with like bloated dizzy Gillespie cheeks right. while while the smoke <laughs> is coming out. It won't look right. So <laughs> that was a whole other um, new hurdle that got thrown, but it worked out. <laughs> 
Yeah. It worked out. And what I was just thinking about was, um, so from 2008 on, you know, we, after that one instance where you really put your foot down, we grew closer and became friends. And um, the one thing that just dawned on me is now you were in a lot of plays. Yes. From that point on in your mm. in your college career. And I had a lot of involvement um, with directing the one acts, the student one acts. And I had my foot in a couple other things. But we never really worked closely together. Yeah. Which is interesting. It is interesting. Um yeah, I mean, we, we always came to each other's shows and supported each right. other. Um, but, but yeah, we never actually worked together, which is a shame. I think uh, the closest we ever came to working together was actually outside the theater department, uh, but still on campus while you tried uh, filming uh, your independent film in theory. Yeah. And that was, um, you know... You know, when Andrew and I, like the first time we actually got to work with you in a directing, with yeah. you as a, in a directing capacity. And uh, that was probably the most improvisation I've ever done for any project ever. <laughs> I'd, I mean, I do hope to do more improv as I, as I get older. But back then, that was that was a huge stepping stone for me. Well, OK. Yeah, that yeah. movie was just outlines. Yes. And- I still get such a kick out of uh, when you did the one scene at the Fine Arts Center and Andrew just ad-libbed hoisting you over his shoulder and carrying you off. Yeah, <laughs> that, need, that needed to happen and none of us knew it. Yeah. So yeah, that was that was a lot of fun. Yes, it was. I forget which building we were next to, but it was the one where we had the where we were discussing the scenario of you uh, claiming that you. Uh, we're going to meet your girlfriend in the movie, which right. I think was played by Kim. Yeah. You cla- you said that she was giving you guff because you walked through the adult section to get to her. Oh, you know what? You're, you're half right. And it's coming back to me now. It was this girl. Her name was Moira. Don't remember her last name. I think it started with a Y. Okay. She was the one who caught me real quick. Like the East Strasburg university library had this weird section in it of all these like weird X-rated books, yeah, nothing uh, picture-wise, nothing graphic with pictures, but um, very just suggestive titles. All get-out titles and specifically curious because it was tucked in the back corner of the place. Right. So I thought it would be funny for somebody, a friend, to catch me there, <laughs> and that was the scene. So it was in the movie. It was a friend. Uh, it wasn't my girlfriend in the film. Okay. Yeah, it's been a while. But yeah, it has been a while. <laughs> you're dredging these memories up now as you're saying it. So I all but forget about that movie until I stumbled across the DVD and go, not ready to watch this again yet. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, maybe that's my 14-year-old self not, you know, not wanting to look back exactly. at that. There are things I can look back at. But I haven't got the courage to look back at that yet. For no other reason but me seeing myself, that whole package that was Albert back then. Yeah. So. (laughs) One's toughest critic is oneself. Yeah. 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 But that is the only, I think through college, um, the only time we had the opportunity to work together on the same project. Um, I remember being involved in the one acts and you being in other one acts. Yes. While I was directing one. 
it, it was supposed to be like a Tennessee Williams uh, one act festival. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, and that's that's um the year I was I did the Pink Bedroom that year. That was an, that was another one where you know it will, thankfully not me that that particular time, but other people gave you grief. You said, didn't you? Uh, you were saying one of the professors uh, was uh, giving giving you trouble in regard to uh, Steph Cariffi's costume design for that show. Yeah, and I'll tell you briefly what happened with that. Is um, so I drew two costume designs, and I said, "This is kind of what I'd like," and you could choose. And she, 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 you know, she went with the Morris Gay one, which was cool. And um, somebody, I don't know who it was, if it was a professor or one of the people in, in charge of the, um, the Student One X, actually, like, separated her from the herd and, like, talked to her privately. Said, like, you know, you don't, if he's making you wear that, you don't have to wear it if he's making you wear it. <laughs> And she's like, no, he's not making me wear it. You know, he gave me an option, and this is what I chose. I'm proud of the fact that of the three three years of One X, I did two of those three. I I was the reason why there were parental advisories <laughs> before the One X. So I'm I'm, I'm proud of that. <laughs> Keeping folks on their toes. So let's backtrack a little bit. Um, do you recall when you were younger, young couch potato Luke? Um, <laughs> well, I know I certainly loved Disney. I certainly loved Godzilla, but I'm trying to think of you know which ones, which live action films you know and actors I loved. I know uh, I think like my first love of live action musicals and remains my first love to this day is uh, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang with uh, Dick Van Dyke. Mm. Yeah, I absolutely love that film. And you know, so I'm sure that one may have been an inspiration back in the day. I know uh, I definitely have a soft spot for the Adventures of Robin Hood with Errol Flynn. I mm. I think that movie more than anything is the reason why I've always wanted to learn uh, fencing and sword fight choreography. But sadly, I have yet to to brandish a sword on stage because there were no fencing schools uh, near where I grew up, and sadly, ESU. Uh, I think when I was a freshman, they had a, they had a, ele- like an elementary foil fencing uh, fitness class, but um, it, they got rid of it before I had the chance to enroll in it. I don't know if the instructor left or they, or if they just um, had a budget cut or what. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so uh, the closest I've ever came to, I mean, I technically uh, you did some sword fighting in uh, at the Dorney Park Haunt attraction because the haunt is uh, divided into different uh, uh, sections, and I was in the uh, the medieval themed one, uh, Age of Darkness. So we used prop swords, and I got to learn some very basic uh, broadsword choreography. But I stunk at it, and I lost most of my fights, which were like ninety percent improvised anyway. Mm-hmm. But yeah, um, even though I'm definitely a late bloomer in this regard, I know that uh, you know the Adventures of Robin Hood with Errol Flynn. I th- I think is is one movie that uh, I, is definitely one of the oldest movies I remember inspiring me you know with acting. But the the first actor uh, that 
at this point in time, my favorite actor is Humphrey Bogart, and my favorite acting moment. Uh, this was this was later, oddly right. enough. This was when I was in high school. Um, uh, my parents and I were watching uh, his Oscar-winning uh, film, uh, The African Queen. I remember I was sitting on the floor and my parents were sitting on the couch behind me. The movie was playing on the TV. I was only half-heartedly watching it because I had never seen it before and I only joined in after I saw other people were watching it, so I wasn't as invested. But my mom and dad you know, were watching it undivided attention they had seen it before they caught it from the beginning and there's the pivotal scene in the movie where uh they're in their boat their little steamboat the african queen and the river gets so shallow and muddy that they can no longer use the propeller they have to try to push it along with with poles and even that stops working after a while the boat gets stuck and he has to go wade into the river which comes up to like his sternum at this point and he drags it until it's free and then he climbs back in and finds out he's covered with leeches and thankfully he's a salesman and he and Catherine Hepburn are sprinkling and rubbing salt on the leeches to get them to let go so that they won't leave open festering wounds then they grab the poles and they push the boat maybe 10 feet and then it gets stuck again and he and um, I'm watching this you know on the floor half-heartedly and my dad is sitting behind me and he says, Luke, I want you to pay attention because there's a very important life lesson in this scene. So the scene plays out and the boat gets stuck again. And most beautiful, subtle acting I've ever seen. No, no tears, no big ham-fisted speech about the meaning of life. You know, and not, you know, crying, hey, Stella, or any other Brando thing. Bogey just turns and looks at Hepburn with this expression that'll break your heart. And then, without saying a word, he just climbs right back into the river to drag it again, knowing that he's going to get covered with leeches again. And I'm sitting there watching it, mesmerized, and my dad says behind me, that's the meaning of life, Luke. To get to where you need to go, you have to be willing to wade through the river with all those blood-sucking leeches. Hmm. And... Up until that, just to put this in context, up until that point in time, I had seen bits of other movies with Bogey, although I hadn't seen any of his, you know, like his big classics like Casablanca or The Maltese Falcon. But I had seen bits of his movies, and I had seen uh, Woody Allen's uh, Play It Again, Sam, which has like the ghost of Humphrey Bogart as an imaginary friend to mm. Woody Allen's character. So at that point in time, I knew Bogey was cool, but... He wasn't, you know, like one of my top 50 favorite actors at that point, although I... Honestly, I don't. I couldn't even begin to tell you who my favorite actors were at that point in time. But when I saw that, and I saw, Bogey taught me the meaning of life with a look. Mm-hmm. That's my favorite actor. That's the actor I wish I could be like. Now, granted, with the, the way film and especially theater work these days, you can't act like Bogey because, you know, even now there are so many he has a hate following online people watch him and they're like oh he's so boring he's so wooden and expression he does this same expression in every movie he plays himself in every movie that he's in but that subtlety you know that you could get away with back then you know i find it so powerful Mm -hmm. and i even when he uses very minimal expression and very minimal change of vocal inflection to me i don't see oh, he's phoning it in, or he's not trying, or he's just there to collect a paycheck. I see 
No, he's just being extremely deliberate. He's not changing his expression or inflection unless it counts. And mm. so ever since then, he's been my favorite. And I've finally gone on to see Casablanca, Maltese Falcon, uh, The Big Sleep, and, and a couple other of his greatest hits since then. And he remains my favorite actor to this day. Mm. Why do you think it is that the subtlety of actors of the past hasn't survived in acting today two words marlon brando okay and ironically because the street a streetcar named desire came out the same year as african queen now bogey won the oscar for best actor he beat brando but was it was it a sort of changing of the other guard yes everybody and bogey even joked about it like he's he he joked you know that 20 years earlier he came to hollywood with only one good suit and people told him he looked like a bum 20 years later brando shows up in a wife beater and the town drooled all over him Mm. it's like it it was a major changing of the guard Mm -hmm. and to this day i cannot for the life of me imagine why i mean i know that you know, he was Stella Adler's prize student. I know that Brando was Stella Adler's prize student, and he played the role on Broadway before he did it in film. And they said even when he was on Broadway, he was such a scene stealer that directors actually had to block scenes in such a way to make sure that even when he wasn't talking, he was closest. He was close to people who were talking because they noticed if he was on the other side of the stage, people would be watching him instead of the actual dialogue. But, you know, so many, his fans, his massive fan base watch Brando and they say, oh, you know, he's so sincere. He managed to find that perfect middle ground between subtlety and sincerity and, you know, and just bringing them together. He wasn't overacting or underacting. He just met that perfect middle ground. And to me, I don't see that. I always thought that, you know, especially in Streetcar, I thought Brando was actually a little over the top. And when I, and when I watch, you know, a lot of black and white movies that came out before his time, with Bogey, or James Cagney, or Jimmy Stewart, or Gary Cooper, I watch, or or if we go back as far as the silent era with Lon Chaney Sr., I watch these guys, and I'm like, I think film acting had plenty of greatness to it before Brando came along. If anything. I'm I know I'm in the minority I know I'm signing my death warrant with this but I think he kind of ruined it I think acting went downhill because of Brando and I would love if we went back to the act the way it was before then and in that vein we do have some people who are like that today Mm. like Russell Crowe, I think, is is a is a throwback to the pre-Brando era of acting. And big shock, a lot of people don't like Crowe. They think he plays himself in every movie. Mm. Uh, Daniel Craig is very much a throwback to that time. Uh, Jennifer Lawrence, who also gets a lot of guff for being wooden and playing herself in every movie, she's a throwback to that time. I'm going to pause you right there, only because... Um, did you see the movie Mother? With Yes, with, yeah, with Jennifer Lawrence, she, yes. Uh, what did you think of that movie? And then we can go back to what we were... Okay. Uh, it's definitely one of the most disturbing movies I've ever seen, and I don't think I could bring myself to watch it again. But I am glad I saw it. I think in its own sick, disturbing way, it should be required viewing because, I mean, I, I don't want to get too 
religious here, but speaking as a Catholic, it made me rethink my Catholic faith, which is ironic because it was, well, actually, no, it's not that ironic. It's it's very appropriate that it was directed by Darren Aronofsky, who's a self-confessed atheist, mm -hmm. because the movie, in a lot of ways, is an allegory for the Bible. If you think of yeah. her character as Mother Earth and her husband, Javier Bardem, as Javier Bardem, I meant to say, as God. Um, Which is a premise that goes over a lot of people's heads with that movie. Yes. Oh, that movie got completely trashed yes and yanked from theaters yes and it won and it was all nominated for all kinds of razzie awards the only thing offhand that i really thought was bad about the movie was the cinematography i think like 90 percent of the shots were close-ups of jennifer lawrence which she is a very attractive woman and close-ups can add discomfort in a in a movie we, especially in that context right. but i think it was used a little too much okay. uh, but yeah Speaking as a Catholic, you know, I'm of the opinion, you know, one of the go-to uh, critiques that people have of Christianity or any monotheistic religion is, if God exists and he's all loving, why do bad things happen? Right. As a Catholic, my response is, well, we were taught uh, we have free will. If and that because God loves us unconditionally, if he loved us, if he didn't love us unconditionally, we would not have free will and we would be mindless puppets. I Now, before I saw Mother, the movie, I used to joke, sometimes I wish God didn't love us so much. <laughs> As if to say, he should take away our free will. After watching that movie and putting and getting a different perspective on you know what? No, we are being kind of horrible to each other. We are and destroying Mother Earth. Maybe I don't think I can joke about it anymore. I think I'm being serious. I think we should have our uh, I think he should play the disciplinarian and say, no, your free will is taken away from you. Now go to your corner with the dunce cap until you learn to respect each right. other. Go back to that Old Testament God. Yes. <laughs> Who didn't take no guff. Yes. Who would flood the earth and just yeah. wipe out everybody and start all over again. Right. So let's, um, I'm going to jump to a different movie now. Yeah, that's fine. Let's, let's keep on the religious topic and throw Russell Crowe in. Did you see his portrayal as Noah? Yes. What did you think of that movie? I think... It's fine as long as you don't take it seriously. Okay. I, I know a lot of people, you know, were utterly offended by it, like that's not the Bible. That's not how it right. happened. And I know a lot of people complain about what about the whitewashing. It's like, oh come on, guys. There are plenty of other movies where that is an actual problem. It's it's obviously not meant right. to be taken it's... seriously. I wouldn't go out of my way to watch that movie again, but but I did really like Russell Crowe in that movie, and uh, I thought that. I thought that Emma Watson stole the movie, but of course I have. I, she's like my favorite actress of the world right now, so I'm probably okay. not the best judge. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, that um, I seen it, and I feel the same way. You yeah. know, it's a movie. Yeah. Like it's supposed to be. You know, if you want, like my feeling is always, if you want the 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 facts. Mm -hmm. They're amazing documentaries to watch and amazing books to read. Yes. You know, but when you are putting together a film that is going to have to compete with Marvel and, and, and all the you know, the pop films. Yes. You're going to have to, like, jazz it up a little. Yeah. You know what I mean? And My my attitude toward critiquing film is, is 
constantly uh, being shaped over the years because I, especially because I, I'm a diehard fan of internet movie critics, although there are some I've stopped watching. And for the longest time, uh, I was, I did subscribe to the school of thought that you can judge a movie as objectively good or bad if you look at the facts, but with a little more age and wisdom, and especially some videos dedicated to debunking that myth, mm -hmm. I've come to realize, no. Film is subjective, no matter how many objective facts you can nitpick, you know, factual inaccuracies you can point, you can rip out of a movie. You can't stop somebody from loving a movie that is objectively bad or from hating a movie that's objectively good. It is still a subjective meaning and medium, and not everybody watching is going to have the same feeling. My biggest thing uh, when it comes to how seriously to take a movie is how it is presented to you. Like, my number one favorite comic book movie of all time is Tim Burton's Batman. And that's because it's dark, it's dramatic, but it's not trying to be serious. There's never a feeling that Tim Burton or anybody else involved in the production is trying to make you think this could happen in real life. It's like, no. They have matte painted backgrounds. You have Danny Elfman's music. You have some quirky dialogue. You have you know the Joker falling into the vat of chemicals, just like in the comics. It's like, they're clearly not trying to be taken seriously. They're trying to be fun. Mm -hmm. They're jazzing it up, like you right. said. So I love that movie. But when I watch, and again, I'm signing another death warrant with this, with <laughs> DC tribalists. But when I watch any entry of the Dark Knight trilogy directed by Chris Nolan, especially the second one, which so many people put on a pedestal as like the best film of any kind, I hate those movies because they are being presented in a serious fashion. They they filmed everything in, you know, real cities like Chicago, so everything looks real. The color palette is very bland, the music is very monotonous, and um they explain everything, you know, like how Batman's gadgets work and everything, but then they don't explain the things that really matter, like how is the Joker able to outsmart Batman at every turn? And it's like, no, they're clearly giving you this atmosphere that they want you to take it seriously. They want you to believe it can happen to, in real life. And then they do things that are as fake as every other comic book movie, like the Marvel movies, and they expect you to just roll with it. And it's like, no. Right. You follow the tone that you presented to the audience. That, to me, you know, is a, be a betrayal on their part. Mm -hmm. If you present a serious tone, you better follow through with it. But if you're not presenting a serious tone, good for you. Yeah. So with Noah, Darren Aronofsky, you know, he's admitted he's an atheist. The movie is clearly not trying to be an accurate representation of what happened in the Bible. So why get upset about it? Now, if he if he went publicly and said, this is what I think happened to the Bible, then yes, I could appreciate and even vouch for people getting upset. But he didn't. And my question was always, being a kid who loved animals, how do you get all these animals together and be chill? You know? <laughs> There's, they're bound to, you know, you got hunters and prey mm -hmm. on, the same, on the same boat. How did that work? And Russell Crowe and that Noah movie explained it. Yes. They got on the boat, they all went to sleep. I was like, see? <laughs> now I know. Yeah. <laughs> I can put this to bed now. They all went to sleep. Perfect. You know, like, it solved the problem for me. Yeah. But we are right in our window of time, Luke. Uh, right on schedule, but we are going to have to stop. Um, but this was a ton of fun. Yeah. This like, really was. And I know we have several podcasts worth of conversation. 
that we'll definitely have to get to at some point. Yes. Hey, you love to have you do it again. I would, and I would love to do it too. It, you could just pick the topic at this point instead of, um, I mean, I mean, today we had several topics that we were that we were aiming at. If you mm-hmm. want to just pick one topic at this point, now that I have a feel for how this goes, like if you want to say, let's just talk about Godzilla, or let's just focus on Lon Chaney, or yeah. let's just talk, you know, we could probably cover several hours depending on you know, our schedules and yeah. whatever. Well, and I think part two should start with Lon Chaney. I'm, I'm all we'll, for that. We'll, we'll just go from there. Okay. Thank you for listening to the Planet Shivers podcast. This production and others can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, and archives.org. It can also be found with video content on the Albert Shivers YouTube channel. You can find even more content on Facebook at Albert Shivers Visual Artist and on Instagram at Albert Shivers. You can find Isaac Wilson's work on Instagram at WhenInZen. That's when underscore in underscore zen. Thank you again for listening, and don't forget to like and subscribe.